open up God's word together and hear from our Lord. Uh, That's why you came, not to hear from me, but to hear from our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, speaking through his word. I want to thank Pastor Terry and the the elders for uh, giving me um, the opportunity to, to proclaim God's word to you. Um, and it is just uh, a great uh, pleasure to be in a, a very like-minded uh, church. Uh, my wife and I uh, are from Countryside Bible Church. It's our home church, even while we're um, far away in, uh, in the Middle East. Um, but it's uh, really a, a, a neat uh, thing to be able to see what the Lord is doing here and how he's growing this church numerically, and I know growing uh, each one of you in your faith and bringing souls to Christ. So um, I'm grateful for this opportunity. In our turbulent world, it seems that nothing is certain, nothing is fixed. Everything changes. Every time we put down our hand to lean on something, it moves, and we almost fall to the ground Where can we find something reliable? Where is the solid rock on which we can stand? I live in the Middle East, a region that is not known for stability. In my own country where I live, last year we experienced a major disastrous accident in the capital city. We've spent months at a time with no official government. Uh, The currency has lost 90% of its value. COVID-19 has taken a significant toll on public health, the medical system, and people's livelihood. And even in the recent months while I've been here in the States, the situation has deteriorated even further with shortages in gasoline, diesel, electricity, food, and, and water, and just about everything else you can imagine. Living in that environment, we've grown accustomed to chaos, Everything comes and goes. Today there's a gas shortage. Tomorrow there may be limited bread. But the word of God tells us that it is fixed and reliable. Let's read and listen to the word of the Lord together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Christ says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. These words come from Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, right after the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his baptism in the Jordan River and temptation in the Judean wilderness. In Jesus' sermon introduction, In Matthew 5, 1 to 12, we find the Beatitudes. And uh, I understand one of my co-laborers in the Middle East, uh, Eric Zeller, uh, preached that text uh, for you recently. In those Beatitudes, Jesus teaches that those who disregard worldly privileges in this life 
will be rewarded with heavenly privileges in the next life. And in the following section in verses 13 to 16, Jesus taught how citizens of the kingdom ought to live in this present world. Christ's disciples are intended to be agents for good in the world, salt and light, and must cause others to glorify God by their visible righteousness. In our text for today, verses 17 to 20, we see one main truth. God's word must be accomplished. Very simple. God's word must be accomplished. Each of the four verses in this text teaches us one aspect of that truth. In these four verses, we see four characters and their relationship to the word of God. We see Christ, we see God, we see the believer, and we see the unbeliever. Our Lord teaches us four principles that we must understand about the word of God. And they are Christ fulfills God's word. God accomplishes his word. Believers must obey God's word and unbelievers must satisfy God's word. So the first principle we must understand is that Christ fulfills God's word. It says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Christ talks here about not abolishing the law or the prophets. So the phrase, as I've used it in my outline, God's word is not used in this paragraph. We don't see the Bible or scripture or any of our normal terms for describing this book. Instead, Jesus uses three names, the law and the prophets in verse 17, the law in verse 18, and then commandments to refer to individual commandments in the Old Testament in verse 19. And verse 20, Christ doesn't mention the scripture specifically, but it's integrally tied with the other verses, and we'll see that when we get to that point. The law and the prophets was a common way to refer to the Old Testament. Sometimes they would say the law, the prophets, and the writings, or even the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law referred to the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. You know them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Jesus used prophets here to refer to the Old Testament, the remaining books of the Old Testament that were built on the foundation of the revelation that was given through Moses from God on Mount Sinai. So Jesus is talking about the word of God. At that time, of course, only the Old Testament had been written. But as you know, Jesus' apostles and their associates would be moved by the Holy Spirit to write more revelation from God. These 27 books of the New Testament would also come to be understood as Scripture, bearing the same authority and remarkable qualities as the Old Testament. So what we are talking about today in terms of the Old Testament can many of these characteristics can be applied just as much to the New Testament. They are equally the word of God. The word translated abolish uh, is interesting here. It is often used of completely destroying something. In Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus predicted that every stone of the temple would be torn down. And that's the same word that's being used here. Apparently, there were those who taught 
or thought Jesus was attempting to completely eliminate the Old Testament. Just wipe it clean and start with a new slate. With new revelation from God. Jesus says, do not think that. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, people already thought and his enemies were ready to accuse him of being opposed to the law. Why might the religious leaders of that time have thought that Christ was rejecting the Old Testament law? First, Christ opposed the Pharisees and the scribes who were thought to be experts in teaching and keeping the law. So if Jesus is opposing those who were the law teachers, perhaps he is opposed to the the Old Testament law itself and rejecting it. These people, the Pharisees and scribes, they were revered and respected by the people. We think of them as the bad guys in the story because of everything Jesus ever said about them. Um, for instance, see Matthew chapter 23, a whole chapter devoted to condemning the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe to you, hypocrites. Jesus used that language. But many people at that time saw them as the guardians of the law of Moses. So if Jesus opposed the Pharisees and the scribes, surely he must be opposed to the law and the prophets. That's what they thought. Another reason they might have thought Christ opposed the law was because he challenged the contemporary understandings of the law. If you read the rest of Matthew 5, you see how Christ repeatedly corrected common bad interpretations of the law. The Pharisees in particular focused on external purity to the exclusion of true heart change. You know, Jesus said of them, you clean the outside of the dish. You're focused on what's outside, not on the heart. But the Old Testament itself does not allow for external only obedience. God taught his people from the beginning that their hearts needed to be changed and renewed. So Jesus brought the true interpretation of the Old Testament law to bear. The people thought that Jesus was correcting the law, and he was actually correcting their poor understanding of it. The last reason people may have thought that Christ was canceling the law was that he spoke with his own authority. They thought that Christ was opposed to the law because he was speaking new revelation from God. At the end of this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew seven twenty-eight to 29, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. It was something different and new and exciting, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus was a different kind of teacher than they were accustomed to hearing. He was proclaiming to them God's word, not just quoting Rabbi so-and-so who was quoting Rabbi so-and-so. Christ was not dependent on the law because he is the master of the law. But Christ wanted to assure his listeners that he was not speaking contrary to the law. He was supporting the law. He was in favor of the law. More than that, he completed the law. Without Christ, we might say the law of God was missing something. It needed fulfillment. It needed completion. So Christ came to fulfill the word of God. But what does it mean? What does it mean that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets? The word fulfill simply means to fill up, as you would imagine, or to complete. This word is often used in the context of prophecy, 
When God fulfills a prophecy, he fulfills a promise. He does what he said he would do. So if I tell uh, my son, tomorrow we're going to go to the store and I'm going to buy you a new toy. When we do that the next day and I do what I said I would do, I'm completing that. I'm fulfilling the promise that I gave to him. If a promise made is a debt unpaid, God always settles his debts. Christ completes the Old Testament. In 2018, conservative political commentator Ben Shapiro, a practicing Jew, interviewed Pastor John MacArthur. In the interview, they talked about the Old Testament, and MacArthur explained the gospel as revealed in, not just from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 53. Shapiro, who's a brilliant and respectful and interviewer, nevertheless, of course, could not accept the the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. And he made a comment that I thought was so interesting and helpful to understand his thinking. He said that Jews and Christians disagree on the ending of the book, as if it's just some little twist at the end. Basically, we agree, but there's just some difference at the end that we have a, a disagreement about. But it's not just the ending. Because of the rejection of Christ, the Jews have developed a fundamentally different understanding of the entire Old Testament. Without Christ, the Old Testament history, prophecy, and law are incomplete. Christ is not the dessert, a sweet but optional add-on. Christ is the steak dinner. The Old Testament is the appetizer that prepares us for what is to come in Christ. There are several facets to Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. First, as we've already alluded to, Christ fulfills many prophecies of the Old Testament. In fact, he's the center and main character of biblical prophecy. He's not one small piece of it. He is it. He is the focus of the Old Testament's prophetic expectation. A second facet of Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament is that Christ perfectly and righteously obeyed the law. The law was never meant to be a means of salvation, not because the law was deficient, but because people are stubborn and rebellious by nature. But one man, Christ Jesus, kept the law perfectly on our behalf. Apart from Christ, the law would be discouraging and and disruptive and, and depressing to us because it would be this impossible standard that we could never keep and would only bring us condemnation from God. But Christ, having fulfilled the law, having kept it perfectly, and then having died in our place, giving us his righteousness... This completes the law and what the law was intended to do, to show us God's righteous standard, our inability to keep it, and Christ as the perfect law keeper. The third facet of Christ's fulfillment of the law is that Christ showed the true interpretation of the law. We see this in the remainder of Matthew chapter 5, where Christ shows what the law means in relation to murder and hate, adultery and lust, etc., Christ is the perfect teacher, and through his life and teaching, he brings us the full revelation of God the Father. So through his fulfilling of prophecy, through his life of obedience, and through his teaching, Jesus shows us what God's word means. The second principle we must understand about the word of God is closely related to the first. We saw that Christ fulfills God's word. 
Now we must consider what it means that God accomplishes his word. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. God is not mentioned in this verse, but he is clearly the acting party in uh, the end of that verse until all is accomplished. We have a passive verb. So when you have a passive verb, you have to say, who is doing this? The, the law doesn't accomplish itself. Who is the actor here? And often in scripture, when there is a, a passive verb here, it is actually God himself who is the acting party. He is the one who is making this happen. So Jesus gives us an example here. He says that until heaven and earth pass away, no part of the law will pass away. In the Bible, when the term heaven and earth are used together, it means the entire creation. It's just not two parts of it. We're talking about the whole thing. What did God create in the beginning? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're talking about the entire physical creation, all that God has made. In the Bible, it was common to use two opposite points or two sides of something to communicate the idea of the whole of something. So they would often say, when they were talking about the, the Old Testament land of Israel, about the most northern city and the most southern city, from Dan to Beersheba, and they meant the whole uh, country, the whole promised land. When we say from sea to shining sea, we're talking about all of the United States, everything that's in between those. So the phrase heaven and earth means the entire physical creation. So the word of God is more fixed and more reliable than all the universe, everything we see around us. Christ could have compared the word of God to a single aspect of this world, a stone or a tree or a mountain. Um, in the country where I, li- where I live, very well known for the trees that grow there. There are trees that are thousands of years old, sturdy, solid trees. You cannot push these over, okay? These are deeply rooted in the ground. They're not going anywhere. But Christ went beyond this to say the word of God is more fixed and secure than everything you've ever known and experienced. Everything that exists in the physical world, the word of God is more solid than that. We know that the creation will, in fact, one day be destroyed. God will destroy it and create a new heavens and new earth. But the word of God will continue. What does it mean that the word of God will not pass away? I think this includes God's promises, his covenants, his prophecies. Everything God has said he will do, he will do. We could also include all the truth about God in this world that is contained in Scripture. That truth is unchanging because it's revealed to us by the truth-speaking God. We could also include the eternal commands and principles of God's Word that are based on God's unchanging attributes. Love for God and neighbor, truthfulness and justice. These are things that Don't change. Those standards have not changed over the course of millennia because God is the same and his expectations for us in general are the same. Christ said the smallest letter or stroke, not one letter or pin stroke will pass away. Uh, In Greek, Matthew 5.18 uses the word yoda or uh, iota. 
I'm not talking about Yoda, the, the Star Wars uh, character here, just in case <laughs> you're into that. Um, we're talking about a letter. The Yoda is a single, small, vertical line. It's like a lowercase i, but without even the dot on top. Very small letter. And it's related to uh, the Hebrew letter Yod, which was also the smallest letter in that alphabet. Jesus also mentions a stroke, which is a tiny portion of a letter, but one that might distinguish one letter from another. Just a little bitty mark on the side of a letter. These are important. I've learned from studying Arabic that one dot can make a huge difference in meaning. I've learned this by uh, experience. A few years ago, I wrote out the story of creation, and I practiced it with my teacher, but instead of saying halak, I said halak. And if you couldn't hear the difference between those two very well, that is the point. Um, these two words sound alike. And in writing, the only difference between those two words was one of them has a dot on top of the first letter and the other one doesn't. They look exactly the same other than that. So I should have said halak which means God created, but instead I said halak, which means he shaved. (laughs) So God shaved the heavens and the earth. He shaved the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, even the creeping things. The whole world got a haircut. Um, Jesus shaves. So in all seriousness, Christ is telling us that the word of God will not be altered or corrupted. No small part of the scripture is changed. It's not corrupted. It has not um, been altered by God. More than that, Christ is assuring us that everything God has said in his word that he will do, he will do. No part of the scripture will pass away. Nothing will turn out to be false. No promise will fail to materialize, no command will be canceled. But wait, you say, what about all those Old Testament commands that God did cancel? Well, of course, God requires different things from different people in different ages, especially as we look at the Old Testament sacrificial system. But this is something that was temporary by design and had a particular purpose, not for the granting of salvation to those who would keep the law because they couldn't keep the law. This was had several purposes, but one of the key purposes of the law was would point people forward to Christ and their need for a savior. It's not that it became obsolete or that it was broken. It was the people who were broken. So from time to time, governments might make amendments to their constitution. We've had that happen in the United States throughout the years. Uh, because there was something that was wrong or needed to be changed or, or improved or updated with time. But God's word does not need amendments. It is perfect and unchanging. God's word reflects God himself. Why is it that the word of God is true? It's because the source of God's word, God himself, is true. The Bible is just because God is just. The Bible is righteous because God himself is righteous. It's a reflection of him and his unchanging character, just like a mirror reflects your face. The word of God reflects who God is. The commands of scripture show us God's righteousness. 
The stories of scripture show us God's grace. The poetry of scripture shows us God's beauty and his glory. God's word does not change because God does not change. What he has said he will do, he will do. You know, it's easy to affirm the reliability of the word of God in the abstract. To say, I believe that God's word is true. That it's unchanging. That it will not fade away. The test comes when we are faced with situations where it seems God and his word have failed us. How do we respond to trials, these difficult circumstances in our lives? Do we doubt God's character and promises? What about in ministry? You know, it's easy to affirm the effectiveness of God's word when ministry is successful. People are coming to faith and they're growing in Christ. Yes, God's word is powerful and amazing and having an effect. But is our confidence in God's word only present when God's word is obviously prospering? I have to confess that my faith in the efficacy of God's word has at times been tested. While the training ministry has been blossoming and growing and we can't keep up with what the Lord is doing there, my ministry in the local church has been much less visibly successful. I lead the young adult ministry and there have been plenty of weeks when I thought, I'm going to be the only person in the building. I'm going to be preaching to myself, which I need it, so that wouldn't be a bad thing. But I get discouraged. God's word is seemingly not having the powerful impact that I know that it should. What is my response to that? That's very telling about my confidence in God's word. Is it only reliable in my mind because I see it? Or by faith do I know and trust that God will accomplish the things that he said he will do in his church, in my life, and in the world. So God accomplishes his word. We know that. But what about us? What about man? Do we do this? As God's creatures, we are designed, created to accomplish the will of God on earth. So the third principle we learn from this passage about the word of God is that believers must obey God's word. Jesus says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus teaches us who is the greatest and who is the least in the kingdom. As believers, we should want to know the answer to this question. You know, whenever we learn a new game or sport or, or activity of any sort, what do we want to know? We want to know the rules. How is this accomplished? But we also want to know the objective. How do I win? Or at least how can I be successful in this sport or game or, or activity? We want to know what we need to do in order to succeed. So Jesus here is telling us who is the greatest and who is the least, we should want to know what it means to be one who is great in the kingdom. We should not aspire to be the least. The, 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 the most humble servant, yes, but not to be viewed by God as the least in the kingdom. So who is the greatest and who is the least? It all comes down to one thing, according to Christ in this verse. What is your view of scripture? God will honor those who honor his word. Jesus uses the word annul here, one who annuls uh, command. 
The word in Greek is related to, but distinct from the word in verse 17, translated abolish. That word is kind of destroying the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. Here he's talking about canceling or um, not applying a law in our lives, not obeying, disobeying, or violating a command in Scripture. This word annul is often used in a a very literal sense of untying or loosening the strap of a sandal. So the ESV says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. And that's a good picture of what this word means. So in verse 17, Jesus is talking about destroying the law. But here he's talking about breaking or failing to obey the law, being negligent of a command of scripture and teaching others to do this. But remember that we're talking about believers here, those who who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Can someone completely reject God's word and enter Christ's kingdom? No, we cannot reject Christ and his word and be welcomed into his kingdom. We need to submit to him in faith and repentance. But can someone break some commands of the law and enter Christ's kingdom? I hope so, because if any of us wants to enter the kingdom of God, we must know and trust that that God is going to grant us forgiveness, that even as believers, we are going to disobey God and find ourselves in need of repentance and in need of forgiveness from him. We've all broken God's law. So yes, we can enter God's law, even enter God's kingdom, even though we have broken God's law. But Christ wants us to obey the law, not to earn our salvation, but in order to please our God. He wants us to obey the commands of scripture because they are designed to keep us in righteousness and to keep us from sin. And God hates sin. God hates sin. He hates sin so much. He sent Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He also sent Christ so that he could eradicate sin eventually from his creation. God wants to see worshipers. He wants to see those who are obedient to his word. That's why it says the one who breaks God's law and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. He will enter the kingdom, but he will lose some reward from his heavenly father. Now, there are those that deny that there will be any difference in reward among citizens of Christ's kingdom. But I believe, as I I see scripture teaching, especially in verses like this one, that there is difference. There are those who are rewarded greater reward for greater faithfulness to our Lord on this earth. Now that's amazing because that's God's grace, right? It's God's grace that enables us to do any righteous deed. None of it comes from ourselves. And yet God rewards those deeds, the faithfulness that we exhibit on this earth with reward in Christ's kingdom. So certainly no one's going to be sad or deprived or unhappy in the kingdom of Christ. No one's going to be mistreated in the kingdom of Christ, but there is greater reward promised for greater faithfulness. And shouldn't we strive toward that? Christ has told us that there is reward, and that is intended to be one of the motivations for serving him faithfully because we know that he is good to honor and recognize the good that we do by the Spirit for Christ. This should be one of our motivations to obedience, 
that God has promised to reward. We should not seek these rewards selfishly or greedily or from a spirit of competition. I'm going to get more than you. Never. But neither should we refuse the generous offer of reward and blessing. We don't, as children, they don't honor their parents by saying, oh, I refuse the gift that you've given me. I just love you. No, they accept it with thanks. And that's honoring to the gift giver. And that's how we should treat the rewards that are promised to us by the Lord. It's interesting that Christ mentions that this one will teach others to do the same. It's not just about obedience and disobedience. It's about how you are speaking about the word of God. James 3, 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So to stand in a pulpit like this one and say, God's word says you must do this, or God's word declares to you that, this is a weighty responsibility a scary responsibility to speak for the Lord. But it's not just me at this moment who's in the hot seat. All of us have responsibility to treat God's word well, to speak rightly about God to our family and friends and neighbors. Those who teach must be careful to only say what God has said. How terrible it is for us as teachers or any believer to lead others astray in the word of God. But how can we lead others astray? Uh, There's a couple of different ways that we can do this. We can lead others astray by our words, of course, by how we speak. We might convince others that we don't have to strive for holiness because we're saved by grace. Oh, it's okay. You can just live however you want. God has forgiven you. Or we might like the Pharisees, convince others to obey our own invented extra-biblical commands. Whatever it is that I think is important, I'm enforcing that on everybody who is around me. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is when we create our own commandments to follow, we often neglect the weightier provisions of the law, as Christ says, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Even in our over-eagerness, we can lead others astray as the Pharisees did. And we can also lead others astray by our poor example. By our lives, we are teaching others and modeling what it means to be a follower of Christ. We should want to be good models. Someone may look at our lives and say, oh, that mom, she gets angry at her children, so I guess it's not a big deal. I can do the same thing. God is displeased when we neglect his commandments. But the reverse is also true. When we do what God has commanded us to do, and when we encourage others to do it also, God is pleased. He is not a father that can't be pleased no matter what we do. He is a father who by his grace is pleased with us when we obey and follow his word. Those who honor God's word and obey it are considered the greatest in the kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom is is not the pastor of the biggest church or the person who memorized the most verses or, or knows the most theology. The greatest person in the kingdom is the person who listens to God's word and does what he says. Could be an adult, a child, a new believer, an old believer. Anybody, that's the good news for us, any of us can be the greatest in the kingdom simply by listening to what God says and obeying him. You know, obedience is not a popular concept these days. 
In our modern world, many are rejecting authority. We see it happening in this country, rejecting authority in virtually all of its forms, government, police, parents, uh, etc. As human beings, we don't like to be told what to do, and especially as Texans, right? Individualism at work. Uh, don't mess with us, right? We don't like to be told what to do. But when we reject legitimate human authority, we are really rejecting God. This is the deeper issue. We teach our children to obey us because it is right and because we want them to respond properly to God's authority when they grow up. We want our children, we want ourselves to have a healthy respect for God and his authority and the authorities that he has placed in this earth for our good. Years ago, Kathleen and I were foster parents. We had a young boy named Nathan, and he lived with us for about six months. He was a toddler, and we taught him a new word that I don't think he'd ever heard before he came to live with us, and that was obey. And Kathleen emphasized this with him over and over and over, and he learned it really well. In fact, when he would get in trouble for some uh, disobedience, he would just... um, just repeat it over and over uh, out loud, obey, 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 obey. And so I told my wife, I said, I don't know if we fixed him or if we broke him, but we definitely changed him. He learned something new that he didn't know. He learned that obedience to authority is something that God expects for us. We are to obey the word of God. We need to remember that we are slaves of righteousness. Romans six seventeen to 18 say, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We don't belong to ourselves. We're not free to live however we please. We are free to live according to God's pleasure. We must present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So believers must obey God's word. That's clear. But what about those who do not know Christ? What should be their response to God's revelation? The last principle from this text that we see is that unbelievers must satisfy God's word. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Believers are responsible to obey the word of God. But here we see Christ speaking to unbelievers. Verse 20 is fascinating. And, and I think we have, to, we have to carefully think through it in order to, to understand the connection that's being made here. In verse 19, Jesus talks about those who enter the kingdom of God from the greatest to the least. But they all enter the kingdom of God. Here he's telling us that unfortunately there are some who will not enter the kingdom of God. Not everyone enters Christ's kingdom. And what is the criterion here? He tells us that if a person's righteousness does not surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he will not enter the kingdom of Christ at all. So we need to talk about the scribes and Pharisees. We've mentioned them several times already. But to understand what Christ is saying, we need to understand how the Jews at that time viewed these two groups. The scribes and Pharisees were highly respected. When we read the New Testament, it seems that they're the bad guys because Jesus is always reproving them. But Jews did not view them as bad. They thought the scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous people. They thought that they would have the fast pass. They, the scribes and Pharisees, they're going to enter the kingdom before anybody else. 
And the Pharisees appeared to have a great relationship with the law. They loved the law. They taught the law. They talked about it all the time. They particularly prided themselves on their careful keeping of the Mosaic law. They invented many more laws to help them keep God's law. For example, they knew exactly how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath and still be considered resting. They gave tithes from their spices, the, 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 the dill and, and the mint and the cumin. They were so particular about these literal commands of Scripture. So if entering the kingdom of heaven meant being more fastidious than the scribes and Pharisees, how could anyone enter the kingdom of heaven? You, you can't out-Pharisee the Pharisees, okay? They're, they're, they're the experts at obeying the word of God, the law of Moses in its smallest details. Think about Martin Luther. He was a man who tried to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. Luther said, I was a good monk and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. I can't compete with that. You can't compete with that. Don't try. You will find that you have become like one who is unclean, and all your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and you wither like a leaf, and your iniquities like the wind take you away. We cannot earn heaven by careful attention to the details of God's word. Instead, Jesus wants you to understand that you need a different kind of righteousness. Jesus Christ himself is the only human to ever keep the law of God completely. He possesses perfect righteousness and he offers it freely to you. You must come to him in humility and repentance, asking for his forgiveness and his free gift of salvation. You will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It will change you and you will be justified in the sight of God, the holy judge. But you must receive this gift. If you are still holding on to your, can I say it this way, your, your, your pitiful attempts to obey God's word, to, to say, I, I go to church every Sunday and I read the Bible for, for 15 minutes a day, that's not going to cut it. Do you think God will save you simply because of these external works of righteousness? He has already told you that that's not how it works. You cannot earn your salvation. Only Christ can give it to you. Yes, we need righteousness, but no, we cannot produce it on our own. But does that mean that believers in Jesus Christ live unrighteously? No, we already talked about that. We obey the word of God. Once Christ's spirit lives inside of us, we will want nothing more than to know God and to keep his word. You will treasure every word, every letter, every dot on the page. You will have confidence that God will accomplish his word in your life and in all of history. Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Every word of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament will be accomplished. Our response should be to value and obey the word of God. But we cannot do this unless we have first received the righteousness of Christ, which surpasses all human works and attempts to please God by keeping the law. I pray that this will be true for each one of us hearing the word of God today. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have brought us to this place, that you have saved us by your amazing grace through the work of the Holy Spirit, and that you have given us your word, your perfect standard of righteousness, and your promises collected together of what you are doing in us and through us and in history. Lord, I pray that we would cling to your word, that we would obey it with all of our being, that we would love you, and because of that, we would love what you have said. Uh, God, I thank you for this church. I pray that you would bless it and cause it to continue to grow based on your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.